You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. You ready to get into a Bible study this morning? Let's do it. Uh, Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 16 this morning. Acts 16, if you need a Bible, just go ahead and raise your hands and one of our ushers will be happy to place one in your lap. If you are new to the Bible and you're like, what in the world is Acts and where do we go? Uh, There is a table of contents at the beginning of your Bible. Um, In the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. And we'll be in chapter 16. If you're a regular here at the Mission Church, we have been going verse by verse through the book of Genesis. And we are to the point where Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew, has just been rescued by Abraham And we are about to be introduced to this interesting and mysterious and amazing Old Testament character named Melchizedek. And Pastor Dave will pick up next week in uh, Genesis again. But this morning, we are going to dive right into Acts chapter 16. And this is a chapter that ends with this story taking part in baptism. And one of the things that I love so much about baptisms, whether it's during the winter or the summer, is Pastor Dave and I will take the time, one of us will call and find out what's the story behind why this person wants to be baptized. Um, How has Christ gotten a hold of their heart? What's taken place in their life to get them to this point? And one of the reasons we do that is, one, we want to make sure there's a right understanding of what baptism is and what baptism isn't, because you should never enter into anything unless you have understanding of what it is. But even more than that, it is amazing to hear the incredible stories of how Christ gets a hold of people's hearts and minds. And what I love about sitting in a room like this, is that every single person who has given their life to Jesus has a story of how he got a hold of their heart. And to me, this is incredible. And that's what we're going to cover this morning. We're going to look at a specific story of a man who had no intention of finding Jesus, and yet Jesus went and pursued him through a pretty radical experience. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 this morning, beginning in verse 16. And just to catch you up to speed, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, Acts is literally titled Acts because it's the Acts of the Apostles, the actions of Jesus' disciples whom he entrusted the gospel, the good news, the life, death, and resurrection of who he is to be taken to the Roman world. And for the beginning of Acts... The gospel is going out to both Jews and to Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people. And it's happening primarily on the continent of Asia. And as we get into Acts 16, God gives Paul a calling to go for the very first time to the continent of Europe, an area called Macedonia, which is now today northern Greece. And in this calling, Paul goes and walks obediently into Macedonia. And the very first convert mentioned in the Bible on the continent of Europe, anybody know what her name was? There's a clue. It's Lydia. Lydia. She's the first convert on the European continent. And God calls Paul to go to a city or a town called Philippi. 
And here's what you need to know about Philippi. It was so non-Jewish. It had so little New Testament and Old Testament background that there weren't even 10 Jewish men in a city of hundreds of thousands to establish a synagogue. And we learn earlier in Acts 16 that it was mostly women who worshiped God and they would go down by the river to pray. And so Paul, not discriminating between men and women, but anyone who would hear the good news, he shares with Lydia and the women that are at this river. And from there, he goes into the town of Philippi, ready to share the gospel. So we're going to get into Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. And before we do, let me pray for us. Lord, we know that your word is true and trustworthy. It is holy and infallible and without error. Lord, it is your word breathed by you to us. So may we come before your scriptures this morning with a humble posture, seeking to know more of who you are and who you call us to be. God, we know that as a pastor, I am an imperfect man. And yet you have called me this morning to teach a perfect word, and that can only be done in spirit and in truth. So would you empower me by your spirit to speak the truth? Would we have open hearts and minds to receive what you may speak into our life today? To apply to our relationships with friends or coworkers, our marriages, our parenting, how we steward what you've gifted to us. May we learn from your words so that we can be reflections of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he immediately came out that very hour where the Greek would say, came out immediately. As we dive into this story, we see that Paul is not yelling and preaching on street corners. He's not holding up signs that say, down with the Roman government. He's not out in front of an organization or a building wreaking havoc. Paul and his discipleship team are headed where? It's there in verse 16. They're headed where? They're headed to prayer. They're headed to prayer. And it's important for us to note who is with Paul. Uh, Paul is with some disciples, one named Silas, who is also a Jew. He's also with a man named Timothy. Timothy is a young man. He had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And so he looks more the part of a Greek than a Jew. And then finally, we learn in verse 16, when it said, as we went to prayer, who is the author of the book of Acts? It's Luke. Luke has also joined with Paul and Silas and Timothy on this missionary journey to a city called Philippi. And it says, as they went to prayer, a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination started following them around. Now here's a couple things to note. We're going to move quickly through this part of the story. 
But the Greek word for girl infers that she's not a woman. She's a young girl. We don't know exactly how old she was, but she is a slave. She is a piece of property owned by men, and they're using her to make what? To make money, a lot of money. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, we're taught by the Bible that the love of money is what? The root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money is the root of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is a practical example of what that looks like. Exploiting other people, even to the point where their plight or their misfortune is being capitalized on so that you can make a personal profit. And that's exactly what these men were doing to this girl. They were making money off the fact that she was demon-possessed. Now, it's kind of interesting, the spirit of divination that's mentioned. Um, divination is talked about in the Old Testament in multiple places. It is the consulting of demonic spirits. And according to Old Testament law, it was forbidden in Israel and even punishable by death if someone were to practice the spirit of divination. That same spirit of divination still exists today. For some, it is the tarot card readers, the psychic readers. You can go down onto State Street right across the street from Handel's and there is a uh, fortune teller. Most of that today is just charlatan work. It's not real. It's people who know how to read people to manipulate them. They're just looking to make a couple of bucks, whatever it is. But there is certainly the realness in the spiritual world of a spirit of divination. And here's what we know based on demons. God is the creator of all things. Only he has foreknowledge, which means only God knows the future and what's going to happen. Satan and his demons do not have that ability. But because demons live in this world, they see things in our lives or they see things going on in our family's lives. Therefore, a spirit of divination, this girl would have been able to tell people about certain things, whether it be about themselves or family members, therefore giving the appearance of being able to tell fortunes. And this was a profitable business in Philippi. It was not a Christian city. It was not a Jewish city. It was given over to Greek and Roman gods, and these men were making a killing off of the fact that she was demon-possessed and able to tell people things about themselves. And we know that people who seek this spirit of divination, it's for a number of reasons. It could be for comfort because they're hurting. It could be for affirmation of a decision that they want to make. It could simply be for personal and selfish gain. Whatever the reason, they're desperate to get a hold of something and God calls these things counterfeit Holy Spirits because he wants to give us the real spirit, which is the spirit of Jesus Christ. That provides comfort, not by removing us out of our situations, but by God coming alongside of us and walking with us in our situations. By not numbing the pain, but helping us to have endurance and perseverance, which produces character and character hope a hope that does not disappoint. And so we see that this girl is being used by these men to make a personal profit. And yet it's very interesting what Luke records. She advertises for who? For them. That would be like McDonald's running your health and wellness advertising campaign. That would be like Sylvester Stallone 
running the anti-bullying movement. It just wouldn't really make sense. It's not who you want to have advertising for you. And yet she proclaims something that is deeply true. Look at what Luke records in verse 17. She says, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Is this true? 100%. And yet you don't want Satan advertising the gospel. And it says, for many days she followed Paul and Silas and their discipleship team around until Paul became what? Annoyed. I love this about the Bible. Sometimes we get this picture in other places where it's like, oh, St. Paul. And he, Paul's like, someone shut this girl up. And they're like, well, you should probably cast out the demon if you want her to be quiet, right? He becomes annoyed. And he becomes annoyed Because even though she speaks the truth, James 2.19 tells us, even though the demons believe and they tremble at who Jesus is, even though she speaks the truth, this is not the advertising that Paul wants, a demon-possessed girl telling people that they have the way to salvation. And so after many days, it says, Paul turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And immediately... Or that very hour, the Spirit came out. Um, Some things to note here. One, Paul uses the authority of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, in the name of Paul or according to my power. It's simply, in the name of Jesus, come out. No theatrics, no falling down, no spraying holy water, no big show. Just a simple command, come out. It's important for us to recognize what is of man and what is of God. And Paul shows a tremendous example of what it looks like to simply call upon the name of Jesus Christ in order to release this girl from her bondage, not only from her human masters, but from the master of this demonic spirit that was literally controlling her life, not allowing her to make her own decisions, dictating everything she did, And everything she said, she was chained by this demonic spirit. Paul calls the spirit out. Now, Paul probably did this for several reasons. Uh, One, in Mark chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, Jesus confronts a man who has many demonic spirits in him. And in Mark chapter 3, these spirits come and they throw themselves before Jesus as they possess this man and they say, Son of the Most High God, what are you doing here? Have you come to torture us? The demons know exactly who Jesus is, and Jesus' command to them is to be what? Be quiet, because Jesus doesn't want demons advertising for him either. Therefore, Paul releases, through the power of Christ, this girl from her demonic oppression. This is good news for her. She's free. She's no longer controlled. But the problem is, is that because she no longer has this demon giving her the spirit of divination, what has now happened in this situation? Oh, the men who are making a prophet are no longer making a prophet. And I don't have to elaborate. When you mess with the finances of mankind, there, are tre- there is tremendous wrath and anger. Don't mess with people's money because it's often what they're attached to. And where your heart is, 
There also is your treasure. So Paul releases this girl from the demon. And in verse 19 it says, But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Uh, This is really interesting eyewitness information from Luke. Apparently, who didn't get taken? Luke and Timothy. Why not? Because they didn't look Jewish. Interesting to note that even in ancient Philippi, there was much anti-Semitism happening. They grab Paul. They grab Silas because they recognize that these men are Jews. These men are Hebrews. And there was already a lot of discrimination against God's people. They grab Paul and Silas and drag them before the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or to observe. Um, there's only a partial truth in this. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a half-truth when it comes to the accusation. Are Paul and Silas and the rest of the team troubling the city? No, not by any means. Now, sometimes they do go into cities and riots happen and all kinds of things. Um, But in this case, they were simply on their way where? To prayer. They were on their way to Sunday morning church service. They were on their way to Moonlight Beach for a summer night. That's all they were doing. And yet, because these men have their prophet messed with, they bring them before the magistrates of Philippi, and they accuse them of troubling the entire city. They accuse them of sedition against Rome, significant charges. Verse 22, then the multitude or the crowd rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes, that's Paul and Silas, and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them and threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, that didn't go the way they planned. When we embrace the call of God upon our lives, expect opposition. When we embrace the call of God upon our lives, expect opposition. Throughout the entire book of Acts, or if you go back into the four Gospels, when Jesus is proclaiming that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. Is it an easy road or a difficult road? Oh, it's difficult. Now, there is joy. There is great response to the gospel and acts, sometimes even so much that thousands were being added to the church daily. But where God is at work, what else do we know? Satan is also at work. We see this through the gospels, through the book of Acts. This probably wasn't a significant surprise to Paul and Silas as they were no stranger to persecution, but it wasn't what they planned. They were just on their way to a prayer meeting. And now they get accused of sedition. They're brought before these magistrates of Philippi. And notice the seriousness of what happens. They have their clothes ripped off. How embarrassing. Then the leaders of the city take men, probably prison guards or jailers, and they are beaten with rods, most likely within inches of their life. Because here's what we know about Roman rule and Roman law in this day. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be charged or punished without a trial. 
And even though we know Paul is a Roman citizen, I don't know about Silas or not, but we know Paul is a Roman citizen. They don't take the time to determine his citizenship. They make an assumption because he's a Jew that he's not a citizen, and they wrongfully beat both these men badly in front of a crowd and then tell a jailer, hey, make sure these men don't escape. And because he takes his job seriously, he puts them in the inner pit of a dungeon within the Philippian jail. And then it says he fastened their feet into the stocks. Uh, Ancient stocks had different holes. Sometimes they would put your feet in stocks that would go extra wide to create maximum cramping. It would not be a pretty place. They had been beaten so badly that their backs would have been filleted open and they're laying on a filthy prison floor. And who asked them to come to Philippi? God did. Wait a minute. Hold on. You mean to tell me that you want me to go into this city to share the gospel and God, this is how you repay me? This is what I get from my obedience? How many of you have ever ended up in situations where you've done the right thing and yet the outcome was not at all what you expected? How many of us have found ourselves struggling in a certain time of life in which you're like, God, why is this happening? I don't understand. I've been doing what you've asked me to do. I've been trying to parent the way you've asked me to parent and my kid is just going astray. What else do you want from me? And yet here's what I love. (laughs) I literally just saw a kid go like this to their parents. (laughs) I love that. That's amazing. (laughs) Responding to the gospel. Here's what I love about this, is this is real life. This is what we often experience. Walking in obedience to Christ is not easy, and it does not guarantee that we will have a better life. As a matter of fact, when we read both Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, when you follow God's ways, you often find yourselves in difficult circumstances, ones that you would not have signed yourself up for. Now, I'm going to make a big jump We're going to go from Paul and Silas sitting in the middle of this inner prison, beaten and their feet in stocks, to me at home last night. Just want to clarify, it's not the same. Had a nice day with my family yesterday. Um, Family time is precious to us because there's not a lot of it. And we were about to have just a sweet, peaceful evening. And the phone rings. And it's someone who needs a ride to the hospital because their spouse has just gone into the emergency room and they don't have anybody else to take them. And I would love to tell you that in all my holiness, I went, praise the Lord, I'm so thankful for this opportunity, can't wait to pick you up. But I'm a human person and there was a tension for me. There's part of, I love the ministry that I'm called to. And there's a part of me that just wanted to stay home and sit with my family and have a nice evening with my wife and kids. And because I have a supportive wife and because I do know what God's call is for me, I would like to say wholeheartedly, but let's just say half-heartedly, I went and picked this person up and took them to the hospital. And while I'm sitting in the emergency room, thinking about what my family might be doing and studying for the message to make it productive, part of my thought process was, God, why tonight? 
Why couldn't it be on a night that I was working? Or why couldn't it be during the day? Or... And then a gentleman walked by that I hadn't seen, seen for a long time with his head down, looking very discouraged. And I got to have conversation with him. And his wife is not doing well. And he was leaving her in a state that he's very concerned about. And it gave me the opportunity just to talk to him and pray with him. And afterwards I went, God, this is why your ways are so much better than my ways. Because I think selfishly, I want to do what I want to do. And yet you see fit to want to put us in positions that, yes, cost something for us for the purpose of loving and ministering to others. And I would not have chosen that on my own. But this is the beauty of how God moves in our life. And what I love about this story is Paul and Silas are put into a place that I'm sure they didn't want to be. They did come to share the good news with anyone who would listen. I doubt they thought prison ministry would be the first place that they were called to in Philippi. And yet this is the way that God chose to work in their lives. And unlike me, I'm sure Paul and Silas had a better response. And we know that they did based on the next verses. But before we move forward, Jesus teaches about this. This shouldn't be a surprise to me, just like it shouldn't be a surprise to you. And yet in our flesh, it's so hard to wrestle with when our comfort gets messed with. But here's what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5, his famous Sermon on the Mount. Some of you know it. Let's read it all together nice and loud. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now to make something clear, I was not in a position of persecution. That was just a comfort thing. Paul and Silas are absolutely in a position of persecution. And yet I guarantee you, Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 were ringing loudly in their ears. It didn't cause the pain in their bodies to be any less. It didn't cause the discomfort to be any less frustrating, but it gave them purpose in the midst of very difficult circumstances to know that this wasn't about them. God was doing something and they needed to have discernment to understand what it was. When we consider this scripture from Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches all of us, blessed are you when things get very difficult in your life. Not because we rejoice in the trial itself, but because God is up to something in our character or to minister to somebody else's heart or to move in a way that we would never move ourselves in that way because we don't like being in uncomfortable positions. How do we understand what God's will is? How would Paul and Silas possibly know that this was the Lord's work? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Paul pens this to the church in Ephesus and to us as well. He says, Therefore, do not be unwise 
But understand what what is? What the will of the Lord is. He's about to tell us how to understand God's will for our life. First, he says, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. Uh, This is important. It may seem like a random uh, passage, especially as Paul's about to get into marriage, if you know Ephesians chapter 5. But in order to understand the will of God, when we get into hard circumstances where we don't want to endure pain, where we're uncomfortable, it's easy to reach out to the counterfeit Holy Spirits in the world and to ask them to comfort us. Alcohol, prescription drugs, recreational drugs, pornography. Um, It could be food. It could be uh, finances. Whatever it is, we often are grabbing at all the things that the world has to offer in order to try to bring us some kind of peace in the midst of hard things. And Paul says, to discern what the will of the Lord is, is not to be filled with these counterfeit Holy Spirits, but instead be filled with what? The Spirit the Spirit of Christ, His Holy Spirit, who can provide comfort in the midst of suffering, not by pulling us out of our circumstances, but by empowering us in those circumstances, not by numbing the pain, but helping us to deal with the pain through fellowship in the church body, through the comfort of God's Word and by His power. Next verse, please. Then he says, to understand the will of the Lord, we should speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you, when you're just having a bad day, you're like, I'm going to sing some praise worship to Jesus? Not me. Maybe you. Not me. And yet here's the beauty of what Paul is doing. He's writing to the church in Ephesus and he's saying, if you want to understand God's will, even in the toughest seasons of your life, make melody in your heart. Sing praises to God. Pray out loud. Speak the Psalms back to him because it takes your eyes off of you and your circumstances and puts your eyes where? on Jesus and what he's already done to overcome your circumstances. His death and resurrection, already winning victory for us so that no matter what we face, nothing can snatch us out of his hand. His love is secure and eternal. And we need the reminders of God's promises in the midst of the most difficult and dark times of our life. Paul doesn't just write about this. He puts it into practice. Look at verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were what? Listening to them. Oh, I love this. This is the right kind of advertising. Not the demon-possessed slave girl declaring that these men were servants of the Most High God and declaring the way of salvation, but Paul and Silas, believers in Jesus Christ, in the middle of the prison, feet in stocks, beaten badly, and they're bringing sounds and songs to a Philippian jail that had never been heard before. What kind of sounds do you think came from the inner prison? Don't tell me. Show me. (laughs) 
It's the quietest prison on the planet. <laughs> there would have been wailing and moaning and anger and wrath and swearing and all kinds of noises. And never before had this Philippian jail heard the gospel sung and preached in its cells before. And because these men who had been in prison for however long they had been, they hear the songs and psalms and hymns of Paul and Silas. And what are they doing? They're listening. And here's what I love. They're not listening just to the beat of the music. They're listening to what? The words. And the words declare the praises of Jesus as the Savior of the world, as the one who breaks the chains of captives and opens prison doors to set them free, not to be selfish and live the life that they want to, but to be servants of the Most High God who brings salvation to all. What an amazing testimony. And had Paul and Silas not been thrown into prison, however many men were there, would not have heard the gospel message because they most likely would have stayed in that prison and died. Still with me? Verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. A couple of things. This is a divinely appointed earthquake. How do we know that? Because it doesn't just rattle some cages. What happens? All the doors are open, and then even more strangely, all the chains that these men are chained to on the wall fall off. God sent this. This was his doing. Now, remember, you're in church, but you're still human, so think before you speak to this next question. If you're in prison, wrongfully accused, you haven't done anything that you've been accused of. This isn't fair. God, I shouldn't be here. I'm doing your work. Why am I here? And all the prison doors open and your chains fall off. What are you doing right now? Thank you. First service, like two people said run. And I was like, oh. In the presence of greatness, I'm sorry. We would run out of prison. Because in our hearts and in our minds, we would go, oh, God has justified me. He's released me. I don't belong here anyways. God, you got this one right. Thank you. It's, it's a little late, but I appreciate it. Out we go. And yet remember, God is teaching Paul and Silas to discern what? God's will. Discernment begins with seeking God's will above our own. Discernment begins with seeking God's will above our own. If we go back to the beginning of Acts chapter 16, why were Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, their whole discipleship team, why were they in Philippi in the first place? To preach the gospel and make disciples. And it is evident that Paul and Silas have their minds set on God's will and not their own. This is amazing, and yet it's available to us as well. Certainly, in my flesh, when I'm in an uncomfortable situation, I just want to get out. And yet, according to God's Spirit and His Word, if we're rooted in relationship with Jesus, we may start thinking differently. 
we may start responding differently. We may be looking around at, okay, God, who do you have for me to minister to instead of just getting myself out of whatever situation it is I don't like? Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. We get introduced to this Philippian jailer. And if we were reading between the lines a little bit, based on where Philippi is, Philippi was home to kind of the main battle of the Second Roman Civil War. And here Brutus was defeated by Octavius and Mark Antony, and a lot of Roman soldiers retired in the area of Philippi. It's likely that this jailer was a retired Roman soldier, which means he would have been a hard man. It's also likely that he would have been either overseeing or a part of Saul and, uh, Paul and si Silas's beating. He was a tough guy. He took his job seriously when he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. He wasn't messing around. And he took his job so seriously that according to Roman law, if you were a prison guard or a jailer and someone escaped under your watch, what happened to you? you would be killed. He knows the law, and this is so interesting. Not the law of Moses, which still demands death if we sin, but he knew the law of the Romans, which demanded death if he messed up. And yeah, he could have made excuses. Hey guys, listen, there was this earthquake and literally all the chains fell off of everybody. No one's going to believe him anyways, but he takes his role very seriously. And he's literally about to take his sword and fall on it to kill himself because he knows he's a dead man anyways. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us, For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This man was ready to receive death as his punishment. And yet look how God is interceding for this man's life. He's willing to pursue this jailer to the point of even allowing his servants, Paul and Silas, to suffer. Because what is greater than winning souls for Christ, even at our own expense? Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he didn't do himself. At his expense, he left heaven to come to earth. At his expense, he lived 33 years, not glorified, not worshipped, not in all of his splendor and majesty, but just like us as a human, but without sin. He laid his life down through terrible beatings and on a cross to endure God's wrath meant for us because of our sin, was buried and three days later was raised up from the dead by the spirit and the power of Christ for the purpose of rescuing us. This is the gospel, and God wanted to give this jailer not just the words of the gospel, but what? All the actions of the gospel. What a scene this is. All the prison doors are open. All the chains have fallen off. This guy's like, I'm in deep trouble. He's about to fall on his sword, and look what happens. Come back next week. And No, I'm just kidding. Here we go. 
Some of you were like, sounds good. <laughs> and the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Why would Paul do this? This jailer has been nothing but trouble to him and to Silas and to others. He shows no indication of repentance. He shows no indication of a soft heart. He hasn't asked to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. He hasn't been moral and upstanding. And yet this is the work of Jesus. That while we were still sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. Literally, Jesus didn't just jump on a grenade for his own side. He jumped on a grenade for who? His enemies, us. 1 John 4 also reminds us, we love him because why? Because he first loved us. Notice, this jailer isn't raising his hand to be introduced to Jesus. He hasn't found Jesus. Jesus is the initiator of our salvation and he pursues us to the end of ourselves. It's by God's grace and grace alone that this man comes face to face with a picture of the gospel in real time. When Paul says, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. All didn't mean just Paul and Silas. Who else stayed? Oh, this is the power of ministering to others in spirit and in truth. Paul and Silas spent time praying out loud, singing praises and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord, which contained the truth of God's word. And it was something so powerful that the men in the prison had never heard, and it caused them to even stay put and to trust Paul and Silas in not running out of the prison doors. That's wild. That blows my mind. I get that Paul and Silas stayed, but apparently all the prisoners stayed. Now this man, this jailer, has been confronted with the gospel. Someone who has laid down their life for him. What will his response be? Verse 29. Then he, meaning the jailer, called for a light ran in and fell down trembling before Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul and... <clears throat> Thank you. Whoever cleared their throat for me. <clears throat> Paul and Silas. Here's what we know. A repentant heart first has a humble posture. A repentant heart has a humble posture. It's not a posture that puffs their chest out and says, yeah, I found Jesus. I was doing all this research and I determined, no. It's not somebody who comes to Christ and goes, well, I've explored every other way and you seem to be the best, so I'll choose you. No, it's someone who is hit in the face with the truth of the gospel, with an unconditional love, and their response is a humble posture. Notice what this man does. He brings light into the cell. And he falls at the feet of Paul and Silas. These men who are tattered and bruised and naked and dirty. And he falls at their feet. What a humble posture. And look at the next question that he asks. 
in verse 30. He brings them out and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a question. And isn't it ironic that the keeper of the prison is asking the prisoners, what do I need to do to get out of my chains? My lack of freedom. My life headed toward death because it's what I deserve. Sirs, how must I be saved? And here's what I love about Paul's response. He's not going to give him some long theological treatise. He's not going to say, hey, you got to come to the mission church. If you don't come to the mission church, you can't be saved. Or any other church for that matter. He's not going to tell him you need to stop swearing. You need to stop drinking. You need... He simply tells him this. Look at verse 32, or excuse me, 31. And they said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Here's what I love about what Paul shares. He simply gives him a Romans 10, 9, and 10 response. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead. And then they preached the entirety of the scriptures to him and apparently all his household, not just him, but his family and his servants. And if we know anything about Paul, he started with the Old Testament, the creator, that nothing was created except by Jesus and through Jesus. And through the Old Testament led him to the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, explained the repentance that was needing to take place in his life, that he was a sinner, that was damned to hell because of his sin, and yet through grace in Christ, he could be made whole and have eternal life. Paul shared the entirety of the gospel with him. And the second part about a repentant heart is it responds to the gospel. It responds to the gospel. This man responds And the third thing, if you're taking notes this morning that I want you to write down, is a repentant heart shows evidence of transformation. It's not just a one-time, hey, I got saved and now I go on living my life the same way. When the living God, the creator of the universe, the savior of the world comes to live in our life, there should be a transforming work that takes place. We're saved in a single moment. But over a lifetime, we should become to look more and more like Jesus, bearing fruit in our life, showing evidence of what Christ is doing, putting the old self to death so that Christ can live greater and greater in us. Look at this transformational response of this man, revealing that he has received Jesus as Lord and Savior. Verse 33, and he, the jailer, took them, Paul and Silas, the same hour of the night, and he did what? He washed their stripes or he washed their wounds, and immediately he and his family were baptized. What an amazing picture. Here is this hardened jailer, this tough man, who's made a business of either killing Roman enemies or beating prisoners or treating them poorly. And in an instant, he understands what the gospel is through an act of unconditional love, realizing his life has been ransomed, not just his physical life, but asking, what must I do to be saved in my heart, 
and for eternity. And when the gospel is presented, he receives it wholeheartedly, and we know this by his actions. He then takes Paul and Silas out of prison, and he washes their wounds. What a picture. And I bet you Paul and Silas at this point are like, I'm so glad we stayed. Hindsight's 2020, isn't it? It's getting to that point where we can look back and go, oh God, that's what you are doing. Now I, I know Isaiah 55 says your ways are higher than my ways, but now I get it that your ways are and how quickly we forget, huh? So easy in the midst of our difficult circumstances to forget what God is doing and that he has intentionality even in our suffering. And yet at this moment, Paul and Silas were probably slapping hands and so excited. And what I love is immediately following this man and his family's confession that Jesus is Lord and believing in their hearts that he was raised from the dead, not only do they get their wounds washed by him, but then what do they do? Oh, they return the washing by baptizing this man and his family. And this Wednesday, when we get to do these baptisms, here's what's so incredible. That's the story of the Philippian jailer and how he got saved, which led to his baptism. A believer's baptism. A man who confessed Jesus as his Savior and therefore was baptized, not for salvation, but because he had already been saved. That's what we do this Wednesday. And every person who gets baptized has their own story. Maybe not as dramatic as the Philippian jailer. Maybe it is. If you've ever listened to people's stories of the dark places that God pulled them from, it amazes me how deep he pursues us. How much he longs to be in relationship with us. And that's the beauty of a public baptism. These people are proclaiming, I have experienced the gospel, not just the words, but the transforming of my heart. And so for just a little bit before we close today, I want to talk about what baptism is. And to begin that, I'm going to start in the negative, what baptism is not. Sometimes this helps us tremendously. Um, we practice what's known as a believer's baptism, which means you must be able to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. You must be able to recognize I'm a sinful person. I need to repent of my sins. I can't make it up on my own. I can't do good works to get into heaven. I can't give enough money to get in God's favor. I need his grace and his grace alone. Therefore, we practice a believer's baptism, which means that anyone who's getting baptized has already confessed with their mouth that they believe Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that he was raised from the dead. Here at the Mission Church, we do not practice infant baptism or what's known um, in denominations as pedo-baptism. And here's why. One, the Bible is silent on this. Had Jesus intended for infants to be baptized, we believe he would have made that known and clear. Every baptism that we see in the New Testament comes on the heels of a response to the gospel declaring that Jesus is Lord and believing that he was raised from the dead. It comes with the repentance for sins. And infants cannot do that. I believe it's good intentions by the parents, but bad theology. So 
So we don't go condemning people or calling them names or saying that it's this horrible thing. But we do want to make it abundantly clear. We don't practice pedo-baptism because the Bible teaches you must be able to confess and believe and ask for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you ask for forgiveness, God's word teaches us what? We are forgiven. And when you confess Jesus as Lord, you have been saved by the work that he did on the cross. It's not by baptism. Therefore, we don't believe that baptism brings salvation because you are already saved even before you're baptized with the confession as Jesus is Lord. We don't believe that baptism washes away our sins because what does wash away our sins? It's the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross and nothing else. And that's already gifted to us when we confess him as Lord and Savior. Therefore, why baptism? What is baptism? Uh, This first one is not on your screens, but it's because this is the way that Jesus set the example for us. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 17, Jesus himself is baptized. It's kind of this awkward moment for his cousin John. Jesus goes down to the Jordan River where John is baptizing people, and he says, hey, John, I want you to baptize me. And John's like, yeah, no, you should baptize me. And this is Jesus' response. He says, permit it to be so now, for we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. Whose will was it for Jesus to be baptized? God the Father. And Jesus always submitted to God the Father's will. Therefore, if Jesus was baptized, we should what? We should be baptized as well. We are called to walk in the footsteps of Christ. Next, why baptism? Uh, The first reason on your screens says we identify in Jesus' death and resurrection. We identify in Jesus' death and resurrection. We believe that when we are baptized, we're already saved, but what we're doing is we're identifying with when he died and was buried. We in our old sinful selves, death and sin having power over us, are also buried And when we are raised up out of the water, it represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ in which we identify with we now have new life through his death and his resurrection. There is no other way to be saved. Only through his death and resurrection can we have new life. Not on your screens, but another reason why baptism is Jesus commands it. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus gives what's known as the Great Commission. And part of that Great Commission, when he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is a command from Jesus. Now, we believe the Bible does not teach that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. But if Jesus gives a command, then it is not an option for us. We are called to walk in obedience to what he's done. The second thing on your screens is this. Baptism symbolizes the old life made new. There should be a transformation. People should go, wow, I knew you before Christ, and now I see what God is working in your life now that you're a follower of Jesus. 
the old person controlled by their sin and selfish desires, the old person who was literally a son or a daughter of Satan is now being made new. All the old things have passed away and behold, there are now new things. It symbolizes the old life is dying and the new life has come in Christ. And then lastly, for for our sake today, is it symbolizes our commitment to the church. Um, Not necessarily the mission church, but the universal church in which believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and the only way to be saved. It symbolizes us dying to ourselves and being raised for the purpose of edifying the church or encouraging others in Christ. We believe that when we are saved, God gives us a gift or a special giftings And that is not to benefit ourselves. It's for who? It's for the rest of the church to be built up in Christ. Therefore, when we are baptized, it is a symbol of our commitment to the church. It's a public declaration saying, I have been saved in Christ and I outwardly proclaim that so that I can be held accountable, so that I can build up and encourage and so that God can use me to minister to others that he's placed in my life. The last note I have for you today is that baptism is walking in obedience to Jesus' command. If the Savior of the world, who laid his life down for us, commands us to be baptized, we are called to walk in that obedience for the purpose of living the abundant life that God has called us to. And my encouragement to you today is if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you declare Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you believe that he was raised from the dead, you're experiencing transformation in your life in which he's changing your heart and the way you think and your relationships, I would encourage you to be baptized. doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 40 years or for four days. Walk in obedience to the commandment of Jesus. There is something special about listening to his words and doing it. The last verse that we'll look at today is verse 34. This jailer walks in that obedience along with his whole household. Verse 34, now when he had brought them into the house, meaning the disciples, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. When we participate in the baptism on Wednesday, we are rejoicing because of what God has done in the lives of those men and women saying yes in obedience to Jesus' command. It's worth rejoicing over, not with just burgers and hot dogs, not with just playing in the sand, but actually encouraging our brothers and sisters, giving them a nice pat on the back, cheering for them, being a representation of the church in a dark and dying world. Friends, if you have not been baptized, consider baptism, not for your salvation, but because you've already been saved in Christ Jesus, if you've confessed with your mouth and you've believed in your heart that he was raised from the dead. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.